So let's go into our teaching for today on uh, on this Easter Sunday. So uh, you know, we typically on Easter Sunday, you know, like major holiday, we uh, go and we preach on what are the holidays about. We've been going through a series on the life of David for actually quite a while now here at Redeemer. We started it a couple of years ago, and we've we stopped to do some other things and come back to it a few times. So this past spring here at Redeemer, you know, we've been doing this series on the life of David. So as Easter was approaching. I was thinking to myself, is there any way that we can integrate uh, David's life with the Easter message? And now, that's actually a pretty easy thing to do, being that, uh, that Jesus is uh, the king in the lineage of David, and David, uh, one of the foremost characters out of, uh, in the Old Testament, points us forward to Jesus. We can see uh, prophecies and things that point forward to Jesus that Jesus references in his own life in David's life, and in David's Psalms. So it turns out that it's actually pretty easy to integrate together David's life and Easter. What I decided to do for us to bring that together was look at one of the Psalms that I think we may not have considered of until today, but I think one of the Psalms which is foremost out of the others, an Easter Psalm, and that's Psalm 23. A very familiar one to many of us, I'm sure. I'm sure a lot of us have it memorized, but what I hope to help you see today is that Psalm 23 is an Easter psalm. Let's read it, and then we'll consider what we have to learn from it today. So I'm going to read from Psalm chapter 23. If you want to follow along in your Bible, you can. Open it up to Psalm 23. If not, we'll have the words on the uh, screens next to me, so you can follow along there. But we're going to be in, in, in Psalm 23 today, and looking at what we learn about the resurrection through it. Once again, Psalm chapter 23, and I'm going to start at verse 1. We'll read the whole thing. In verse 1 of Psalm 23, it begins, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's a lot of ways that we are different from the ancient Jewish believers and from the ancient church, the first Christian believers, but there's one way that we are different from them that I think is really, really fundamental to a lot of the rest, and it's something that, uh, that's also easy to miss unless we notice it, and it, it's this. It's what goes to the heart of what salvation is all about. It goes down to the heart of what the hope of salvation and of what God is doing in the world is all about. We, as modern Westerners, tend to think that the, that the gift of salvation and what uh, Christianity or following God is all about is receiving these spiritual blessings uh, through the work of Jesus Christ, even on the basis of grace. So we are given uh, the, the gospel so that we can receive grace or so that we can receive peace or so that we can receive healing. And what we often do is we greatly Im, uh, impersonalize the gospel message by making it all about these, these, these uh, spiritual gifts that we can just receive from God. And we even try to make up for that by saying, you know, the gospel is not a re religion, it's a relationship. And now that's going down the right track. Okay, I'm not against that motto, but we still water down the, uh, how personal the relationship is by making it all about you need to go to Jesus so that you can get things from him, whether it is grace, forgiveness of sins, whether it is because you need peace, because you need hope, whatever else it is. And we turn God into a spiritual vending machine where we go to him with whether it be our works or whether it be our faith, and we get these spiritual blessings from him. Some, some churches and, and, and what I would say false churches and teachers go so far as to make it about material blessings. But whether we say 
the gospel is all about going to God to get material blessings or whether it's to get spiritual blessings that we call grace, peace, or whatever else, this is not how the ancient Jewish believers thought. Whenever they heard God's uh, message of the gospel, all the way, going all the way back to the book of Genesis, what they heard was not that uh, God saying to them, hey, I'm going to make things right so that you can get these spiritual blessings from me. What they heard was, I am going to reconcile our relationship so that we can live together again. That's what they hoped for. Their hope was not for blessings, whether they be material or spiritual. Their hope and what they longed for was what we see in the garden. God and man reconciled together. And so all the things that we speak of and all all the blessings that we speak of and the blessings I'm going to talk about here, like grace, forgiveness of sins, hope. These things are very real, and they are offered to us in the gospel, but they're offered to us in relationship with the person of Jesus Christ and of God the Father, experienced in united relationship through the Holy Spirit. This is the hope of the gospel. It's what the hope was and what it was centered upon, God and humanity being reconciled and restored to one another in intimate relationship. This is what they hoped for whenever they heard the gospel message. And Jesus' resurrection from the grave is the accomplishment of that hope. What I want us to see today and learn about is the blessings that we receive from, because of uh, Jesus' resurrection. We'll call them resurrection blessings. But we receive these blessings because since Jesus Christ rose from the grave, making it uh, possible for our sins to be forgiven, we are then united in an intimate relationship with him. He walks with us in our life, and then in that intimate relationship with him, where we walk with him through life, as God and man once walked together in the garden, we experience these blessings. What are the three resurrection blessings that we see in Psalm chapter 23? Certainty, perseverance, and the last one, restoration. (laughs) The three resurrection blessings we're going to look at, certainty, perseverance, and restoration. Let's begin by talking about the resurrection blessing of certainty. Whenever you think about it, you know, I love any time that I get to speak on or preach on the resurrection, this is one of my favorites. I, don't, I know you're not supposed to play favorites with your children. Uh, you're not supposed to play favorites maybe with uh, your, your siblings. There's a lot of things in life you're not supposed to play favorites with. I'm not sure if that comes to the Bible, uh, but, but I'm just going to go ahead and admit it. One of my favorites, something that I always get excited to speak on and teach on is the resurrection is Easter because it's the cornerstone of our faith. And so as I was thinking about it again this week, I was thinking to myself, the resurrection at Easter is such a dynamic story. What I mean by that is there's, there's a lot of movement in the Easter story. There's the movement from death to life. Jesus' crucifixion, he's crucified, he's buried in the, in the tomb, and three days later, risen from the grave. There's the movement from death to resurrection. There's the movement from darkness to light. And there's also the movement that we can see from doubt to certainty. Because it's interesting. Whenever we read the four Gospels, this might be something that many of us have overlooked before, but whenever we read the four Gospels and, and, and Acts, and we read about how did people respond to the resurrected Christ— I think a lot of people in our society uh, and, and, and in the West today assume that everyone witnessed the resurrected Jesus or they heard the resurrection message and they thought to themselves, oh, okay, that sounds about right. That sounds great because, after all, we're pre-scientific people who don't know anything better. And so someone coming back from death uh, doesn't bother us at all. That's a really ignorant way to think about the ancient people in this time, and it's, and it's something that the Bible also doesn't present to us. Because when we read the Gospels, and we read Acts, and we see how do people respond to the resurrection? How did they respond to Easter? How did his own disciples respond? And how did people who heard the resurrection message respond? We find complexity. On the one hand, we don't find just outright doubt, but on the other hand, we don't find just outright everyone saying, oh yeah, sure, that makes sense, someone dead coming back to life. It's complex. Let me give you an example. In Matthew chapter 28, right before the Great Commission, 
it says this, that uh, it says in Matthew 28, 16, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Now, we know from reading uh, Acts, and we know from uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we know from a couple of other sources that there were more than just the 11 disciples here. Matthew just tells us about the 11, but we know that, that there are actually a, a, a large group of disciples who are gathered here who witnessed Jesus in his uh, last commissioning words and his ascension. Because uh, Matthew doesn't record the ascension, but that's what's happening here. And according to Acts and other places, they tell us that there's actually a lot more people there. Okay, so the 11 disciples are there. That's just what Matthew wants us to know. But there are actually a lot of others. So whenever uh, he's telling us the disciples are gathered there, he's saying there is complex reactions even among the gathered disciples, among this large crowd who is there. They saw the resurrected Jesus. How many of you guys have ever doubted? And, and you said to yourself, you know what, if I could just see him with my own eyes, or if I could just see a miracle with my own eyes, then I would know, and it would put my doubts to rest for the rest of my life. Scripture says, maybe not, because it says they worshiped, but some doubted. Some doubted. Once again, every time we, we read an account of people witnessing the resurrected Christ, or hearing the message of the resurrection, this is what we read. Some worshiped, but some doubted. Some doubted. Here's what's amazing about this, and why I love that Scripture itself says this. Because the Bible tells you that whenever you doubt, you're neither alone, nor are you the first. It says to you that if you doubt, that does not make you unacceptable to God. It says that it's, it's normal, and Jesus can handle it. He can handle your doubts. And that's really encouraging to me because there's times that, that I struggle with doubt. It's okay for you to admit that as a Christian. There's times that we struggle, and there, there's times that we start to question. Maybe it's just cynicism that's been uh, uh, absorbed into us because of our cynical culture. Maybe it's because we go through a time of suffering and that suffering and the, and the hardship that we go through, or perhaps that we witness in the world, it makes us start to question. Jesus can handle that. He can handle it. He is not so insecure as to reject you as soon as you start to doubt and question. He can handle it. He says, you're not the first. He says, you're not alone. But he can take you. Remember, the story of resurrection is one of movement. He can take you from doubt to certainty. Because here's what we read. There's this juxtaposition between some doubted and then what David says in Psalm 23, where he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. There's confidence there. So how can we move from doubt to certainty? Because we know that the disciples did, that even those who doubted moved from that doubt to certainty. They moved past that doubt because of the power of the evidence. They were able to move from doubt to certainty because of the power of the evidence, because they knew that Jesus was crucified. This is a fact which we as well, as people living in the 21st century, can know with a great de degree of certainty. There were times in the past, uh, in the in 18th and 19th century, whenever people started to doubt uh, the, the basic story of Jesus' life, whether there was such a person as Jesus, whether uh, if there was this teacher uh, named Jesus, if he was actually crucified. They started to question all these things, but thanks to the work of incredible scholars, thanks to the work of people who, who investigated, we have seen time and time again through the work of history and archaeology and scholarship that, the, that this story is one that we can have great certainty in, so that now today in 2022, those who deny the existence of Jesus or the basic facts that the gospel gives us that, uh, of who he was and that he was crucified, those who deny that today are kind of seen as crackpots. Like, eh, those are not the best. Even the most skeptical of historians to the Christian message affirm the fact that Jesus was a person, is who he uh, that Jesus existed, that he was crucified. 
So they, they saw that evidence. They were able to witness it with their own eyes, that he was crucified. And then they were able to witness this. Maybe even for those who didn't get to see the resurrected Jesus himself, they were able to see that his tomb was empty. Remember, the Gospels tell us it was a public fact of where Jesus was buried. So the whole city knew he was crucified, and they knew it was a publicly available fact. He was buried in a tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea. His burial place was not a secret. Because if it would have been a secret, a place that nobody really knew where his tomb was, well, then the disciples could have gone around Galilee and and Judea and said, he's risen, but no one could have gone and checked for themselves. But if instead it was publicly known, and anyone could go to the tomb that Joseph of Arimathea owned, right, where even the Romans knew where it was because they had to station guards there. The Sanhedrin knew where it was because they paid those guards who were stationed there. Everyone knew they were able to go and check for themselves. And you can't say that, well, maybe the disciples had just rolled the tomb away, uh, rolled the stone away and taken Jesus' corpse out themselves to, to go and hide and concoct this story because there were Roman guards standing there and they wouldn't have been too easy to persuade. So there's these basic facts. He was crucified. He was buried, but then his tomb was empty three days later. And you have all these people who witnessed him alive. Moreover, all these people who witnessed his ascension. If you deny the resurrection, then you have to account for all these facts. The fact that he was that he was crucified, that he was buried, but then that his tomb was empty, and you had this entire community of people who now said, at first we doubted, but we saw him alive. If you still deny the resurrection, you have to account for these facts uh, because they don't just go away. Here's the thing. The facts and the evidence was so powerful that it not only convinced the disciples, but it convinced them to the point of death. Because here we have in the Easter story these disciples who, after the crucifixion of Jesus, went into hiding. Why? Well, because whenever Romans would take a messianic leader and put him to death because they were afraid of rebellions coming up, they would usually go and round up all those people who were following that leader and put them to death too. That's why all of Jesus' disciples went and hid They were afraid for their lives because they knew the Roman playbook. They knew that if their leader, Jesus, had been crucified, they were next if they were found. They're hiding, but then something happens which makes them go from hiding to declaring it in the public square. To declaring in the public square, to declaring it before the Sanhedrin and not being quieted even by their beatings their lives only being spared because the Sanhedrin became afraid of the crowds and how quickly the message was spreading and how many people were following Jesus. Beyond that, the sufferings they, that they experienced uh, going on in the decades after their, their own martyrdom, you see, the evidence was so powerful that it led them to be willing to die for it. We talk about, Christian apologists talk about that a lot the power of the evidence and how the disciples were willing to die for it. And I think that is something that should really, really make us seriously consider the event of Jesus's resurrection as an historical fact. But here's what I think apologists typically miss. And I I say that as an apologist. Here's what I think we typically miss. The disciples did not die for an event. They died because of what that event meant. They did not die for an historical fact. Who gives up their life? Who dies by being burned to the stake? Who dies by crucifixion? Who willingly takes on beheadings for just historical facts? Not many people, right? At the point of death, we're willing to say, okay, yeah, sure, sure. It didn't happen the way I said it did. But they weren't willing to go back on the fact of the resurrection because of the meaning of the resurrection. Because they knew what it meant. The meaning of the resurrection is this. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, 
and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What did the resurrection mean, and why did it give them such conviction that they were willing to die for the message of the resurrection? Because they knew that since Jesus had risen from the grave, it was the proof that gave them certainty of God's love. So that even in times when they doubted, they might be brought to that certainty so that they could sing along with David, surely, you hear that word? He said, surely, he's convinced of it. He's certain goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. The disciples were able to know that. And they were able to have that confidence at the stake and at the cross and in exiles and in, at the, at the, in the teeth of the lion in the Colosseum because they knew Christ had overcome the grave for them. And because he had overcome death for them, they knew that since he did that, then he loves me. And it is that, the certainty of that love, it is the certainty of that goodness, that mercy, that made, that made them unwilling to try to escape death if it meant compromising their risen king. David says, surely goodness and mercy. Other translations translate it as, uh, surely goodness and faithful love or steadfast love will follow me all the days of my life. The word that David uses, uses there is this powerful Hebrew word, hesed. Hesed was the Hebrew word that was used, a special term, a loaded term that was used for not just any kind of love. You didn't use hesed for, for just any kind of love, the love between friends or brothers or anything else, but the covenantal love of God. The love of God, which is, as we translate it, steadfast. The love of God, which is immovable. The love of God, which is unchangeable. The love of God, which we can count on day in and day out and through any moment of time and through any uh, period of history. Why? Because it is bound in God's promise. But how do we know that we, can, that we can trust in God's promise? What sign do we have? The resurrection. The resurrection, that he died for our sins and that he overcame death. The resurrection is God's sign to us, his proof of his love for us, so that we can sing with David, surely goodness and said. His steadfast love for me will follow me all the days of my life. The first point, Jesus' resurrection gives us the certainty of God's love. A resurrection blessing, certainty of God's love for us. Why else could Paul say this in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39? He said, for I am persuaded. You see, that's another term of certainty there. He says, I am persuaded. He has confidence and knowledge that neither death nor life, he says, he says angels or demons, he goes down this long list, nor any other created thing would be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's the first thing in his list? He says, I'm persuaded neither death nor life. What could be more powerful than death? Is there any other force in our world more powerful or more final than death? There isn't. So Paul looks at that most powerful of foes, and he says, if even that is not powerful enough to separate us from the love of Christ because he overcame death, then I'm persuaded that nothing will. You see, the resurrection gives us the certainty of the love of God that is for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. But what does this mean? What it means for your life is that you must apply the ointment of resurrection certainty to the source of doubt. Wherever you, gain, wherever you get the source of doubt, whether it be through suffering, whether it be through cynicism, whatever else it might be the source of it, but whenever doubt comes up in your heart and it comes up in your mind and it nags and it aches at you like a sore, the only medicine, the only solution to it that'll, that'll bring it relief, that'll bring it healing, is the ointment of the resurrection. Apply that resurrection certainty 
to the source of doubt, whenever you, your heart starts to question and to wander away. Look at the empty tomb. Examine the facts, the evidence, like the ancient disciples did. The most plausible conclusion that it leads to, which is that Jesus did, in fact, raise, rise from the grave, and then what it means that that event happened. That if he overcame the grave, then it is certainty, it is proof of his love for me. Like I said before, it's, it's, the, it's the stamp, it's the proof. If you've ever doubted your spouse's love or commitment to you, you have this symbol that you carry with you all the time, right? That you exchanged with one another whenever you made your vows to covenantal love, a love that was not uh, given to the other based on how well they loved you that day or on how, uh, on how much they had earned it, but because you had promised it. You give each other a ring. It's that symbol that you can always look at, that gives you certainty, that gives you knowledge, that you know they love me. The resurrection is our betrothment promise. It is that, it's that ring. It's what we can look to, a certainty of God's love whenever our hearts begin to doubt. So the first resurrection blessing is certainty, certainty of God's love. But there's also perseverance. Let me say, let's say that I told you I could sell you the world's greatest umbrella. The world's greatest umbrella, I can give it to you, I can sell it to you, it'll be yours, and boy, oh boy, are you going to love this thing. The world's greatest umbrella. There's just one catch. Uh, it completely disintegrates in the rain. Now, that's not the world's greatest umbrella. No matter how wonderful it might be, if it disintegrates whenever you need it, if it falls apart in the rain, well, then it's, it's worthless, right? It's not doing anything good for you. And friends, that's how helpful a joy or a peace is that cannot withstand suffering. Anyone can be happy when things are great. Anyone can be at peace whenever there is no threat to your life or there is no uncertainty or questioning. A joy or a peace that, only, that can only withstand good times, times of sunshine and of plenty and of health, but that completely falls apart in suffering is no good to us. Which is why the joy and the peace that we are offered in God and the joy and the peace that we are offered because of Jesus' resurrection and the relationship that we get through him is so much better than can be offered to us in the world because the joy and peace that we see in Scripture is always this, a joy and a peace in the midst of suffering, in the middle of trial. I challenge you to go and read, go and find any Scripture where it sings of the joy of the peace, of the security that we get in God without it also talking about suffering. The Bible always highlights for us these blessings that we get from the Lord in the midst of when those blessings are challenged because that tells you just how good they are. Whenever any worldly peace falls away, whenever any happiness or joy that we might receive from the things of the world or the pleasures of this earth, whenever those things are taken away from us because of suffering, the fulfillment and satisfaction, the love of God, the joy of the Lord, those things remain in the worst of storms. How is it? Why is it that the love, joy, peace offered to us by God the Father and offered to us in the gospel is so much better, is so much stronger, more, more resilient? Here's why. Uh, David tells us. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's talking about challenge, suffering, hardship. He says, I'll fear no evil. Why? He says, for you are with me. For you are with me. I took a class in college on, on the Psalms and interpreting the Psalms and had it by, was able to take it with just an incredible Hebrew scholar who actually specialized in uh, interpreting the Psalms. And whenever we looked at Psalm 23, he said, here is, the, here is the fulcrum of this Psalm, right? This is the center of it, where it all stands or falls apart, is on this. What the whole Psalm is about is in verse 4, for you are with me. Remember what I said before in the introduction. 
the hope of the ancient Jewish believers and of the early Christian church was of a restored relationship with God, a personal relationship where we are united with him in, in intimacy, not just that God is far removed and he bestows upon us blessings because of our good works or just because he's, he's so nice. No, instead, a God who is with us. This is what David sings about. He says that he, um, that he can walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that he fears no evil. He says that even whenever he is in the midst of his enemies, the Lord prepares a table before him. He anoints his head with oil. He says his cup overflows, not in the times of good, but in the times whenever he is suffering. Why? Because God is with him. He said, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He's drawing on the imagery of a shepherd. He's saying, just as a shepherd stands near his sheep whenever there are wolves present, and he protects them with his rod and staff. If that wood, if that danger, uh, wolf, if that wolf, if that danger, if that predator gets close, the shepherd will defend his sheep with his rod and staff. This is what David refers to. He says, like me, the sheep, and you, my shepherd, you walk beside me whenever I go through times of danger. Whenever I go through periods of suffering and of trial and of testing. And so, because you are right there next to me like a shepherd stays right over his sheep, he says, I can go through it. I can walk through the valley. Notice he he doesn't say, for I am paralyzed in the valley. He doesn't say I hide in the valley. He says, I walk through it. That's perseverance. Perseverance through hardship and suffering. What this tells us is that The God that we follow and our resurrected king is the shepherd who does not abandon you. Instead, he goes with you. It's hard to be with someone who's suffering. We know that in our own lives. Many of us, even for those of us who might be extraordinarily gifted in mercy and in in helping those who are suffering, most of us, we don't like being near someone who is suffering. Why? Because it's, it's taxing. Because there is emotional resources that it takes from us. There's an emotional burden that takes on us. Sometimes it might be time. Sometimes if it's someone who's suffering financially, we don't like getting too close to them because of what it might mean and sacrificing our own finances to help them. But whenever there is someone who is suffering or who is needy in some way, very often we try to find ways to avoid or not get too close because of the sacrifices it might ask of us, whether it be in resources or whether it be in our own emotional energy. But our God does not avoid, and he doesn't look for a way out, and he doesn't pull away whenever we are in need and whenever we suffer. Instead, whenever we are at our neediest and whenever we are, we are suffering intensely, he draws near. He draws closer the sacrifice that is asked of him, the burdens that are asked of him in our neediness, he he jumps at the opportunity to give. And because he does, because he is the God who goes with you in your suffering and does not abandon you, well, friends, what that means is, is that you can persevere. You can persevere any darkest valley, and your cup can overflow at any table in the presence of enemies. The second blessing of the resurrection we learn about is that Jesus' resurrection helps us to persevere through trials. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, let us run with endurance. Endurance, perseverance. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. How? It says, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How do we run with endurance? How do we persevere? How do we walk through the valleys? By setting your eyes, fixing them on Jesus Christ, by knowing that he is with you. So what this means for us, how we apply it to our lives, this resurrection blessing, set your eyes upon the risen Savior to persevere through the dark valleys. Set your eyes upon the risen Savior to persevere through the dark valleys. In Charles Dickens' classic book, 
A Tale of Two Cities, at the very end, on just the last few pages, there's this scene where uh, there are a couple of characters who are in prison awaiting to go and be beheaded, to be executed before the crowds in the midst of the French Revolution. They're going to be executed, and there's this, there's this poor girl who is there in the prison, and she is there with a man. His name is Sidney Carton. Sidney Carton, though, is not who was supposed to be in the prison. It was actually supposed to be another man, without going into the, the whole story. It was supposed to be someone else. But in an act of completely selfless sacrifice, because they looked extremely similar, Sidney Carton stepped up to stand in his place so that this other man's family wouldn't have to lose him. He willingly stands in the place of this other man. He, he, he gives himself, he substitutes himself to go to, to the guillotine, though he didn't deserve death. And this servant girl, whenever she realizes who her fellow prisoner actually is, who he actually is and what he is doing it and why he is doing it, it gives her courage as she's facing her own death. She says, but for you, dear stranger, I should not be so composed, for I am naturally a poor little thing, faint of heart, nor should I have been able to raise my thoughts to him who was put to death, that we might have hope and comfort here today. I think you were sent to me by heaven, or you to me, says Sidney Carton. Keep your eyes upon me, dear child, and mind no other object. Our shepherd king, our resurrected Lord, says the same words to us, who stood in our place, who selflessly substituted himself for us on the day of our execution, so that he might be with us now in our darkest valleys, in the worst of prisons, in the deepest of trials, and say, keep your eyes upon me, dear child, and mind no other object. David says, I can walk through the valley, for you are with me. Because his eyes were on his shepherd king, and he minded no other object. Friends, do the same thing in your life. Whenever you are struggling to walk through trial, Keep your eyes on him. Endure by fixing your eyes on him. Whenever you're navigating the storm, remember that he is with you in the boat and that he helps you to navigate. He is with you. So fix your eyes on him. We kind of worked our way from the bottom up in Psalm 23, looking at the certainty that David had. And looking at the perseverance that David was able to have because of knowing that the Lord was with him. At the very top, what we see and what we might summarize as David's whole experience in this psalm and what is offered to us is restoration. I think we see this whenever we ask this question. What was Jesus' goal in the work of redemption? What was Jesus' goal in the work of redemption? What was, and I, and I don't just mean uh, in legal terms, because we, if, if you have a theological mind, you might say, well, his goal was justification. Okay, well, yes, but what was in his heart? What was the goal of his heart that moved him? You know, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, for the joy that was set before him. So there was something deep in his heart that motivated him. That was his, his goal. Yes, it was justification, but there was something deeper than that. What is in his heart, in the goal, and in the work? He tells us in Matthew chapter 11. I've said this before, and I referred to this last week, but this, this passage has really been uh, in my heart, and I've been meditating on it a lot lately. And I, th I think it applies here again as well. The only time in the Gospels where Jesus tells us what his heart's like, where he tells us what his inner character is like, what's most natural to him, he says in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Doesn't that sound like the first three verses of Psalm 23? He says, I will give you rest. That sounds like what David is talking about. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because, and here's where he tells us what his heart is like, I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is his goal? What's in his heart? What is the joy that is driving him to endure the cross and overcome death? It is to bring you restoration. It is to bring you restoration. It is to give your heart rest. 
Now, here's what that means. It doesn't just mean leisure. The rest that Jesus wants to give you doesn't just mean leisure from, from difficulty or, so, or, or anything like that. The kind of rest that he is talking about, the rest that comes with uh, knowing that in him our sins have been forgiven, we receive all we need from him, despite whatever trial we face in our life, and that, that forgiveness, all that we need, is secure in his hesed, in his steadfast love for us. That kind of rest of knowing that, that you know, even though outside right now everything is going crazy or everything is unstable, what I truly need in my life is secure in Christ, that kind of rest, that is what Jesus wants to offer you. That is what is in his heart. In fact, he goes on after this, and so that's at the end of Matthew chapter 11. And then you go on to chapter 12, and Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was all about rest. The Sabbath was all about rest and restoration that we receive in the presence of God. Whenever we step away from our toils and whenever we step away from our concerns of the world and we just we try to lean in deeply to God's presence. And, and, and we try to lean into that experience that David talks about in Psalm 23 of being with God the Father and that giving us all that we need. Knowing that the Lord is our shepherd, I shall not want, other translations say, the Lord is my shepherd, I need nothing. Whenever we step into that, what we are experiencing is Sabbath. And Jesus says, he says, come to me because I am lowly and humble in heart. And then he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. He's doubling down on his message that what he desires for you is rest in him that restores your soul, that restores relationship between you and him. He goes on then to heal those who are broken. There's a man with a crippled hand, it says, and he restores his hand. You see what Jesus is doing, and he's accomplishing in his resurrection. He starts to show them before their eyes. Look at what was broken is being restored. What is dead is being brought to life. That's what the resurrection is all about, and it's what he shows them. And then it says that he goes on, and he heals many other people. Once again, he's showing them what it means. He's restoring what is broken. He is restoring what has been damaged by sin. And then the Pharisees, they say to him, well, what sign can you give us of all these things that you, that you were talking about, as if the healings he had just done for them weren't signs enough? They say, what sign can you give us? And here's what Jesus says to them. An evil and adulterous generation, uh, generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What is he referring to? He says, for as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. You know, he, you know what he's referring to? You know what he's talking about? He says, Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. But I'm telling you, there's something even greater before your eyes. He is the greater Jonah, who wasn't in the belly of a, of a fish, but it was in the belly of the grave for three days, but was risen from that grave just as Jonah was delivered from the belly of the fish so that he might go and deliver good news to the men of Nineveh and salvation might come to them. Jesus was delivered from the belly of the grave so that good news might be preached to you and I and salvation might be brought to you and I. And with salvation comes what? The accomplishment of what Jesus desires, to give you rest and to restore your soul. The third blessing that we see, the third resurrection blessing, is that Jesus' resurrection restores our souls in the midst of life's difficulty. I just want to remind you of that, that Psalm 23 is not a psalm of just uh, of purely uh, happy, clappy, easygoing, smooth sailing times. But it is a psalm of flourishing and of restoration, of lying down in green pastures, even whenever we go through the darkest valley. You cannot divide this psalm up. They all go together. And the part about the darkest valleys and the enemies does not negate what he said before. His resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, Easter, is what accomplishes Psalm 23, 1 through 3. It is the accomplishment of God being our shepherd. 
of of him helping us, taking us to lie down in green pastures, to lead us beside still waters, to restore our souls. How many of us need restoration in our souls? Christian believer, even you who have been walking with, with God, and you have been struggling and, and, and uh, waging war in the fight against sin, how many of you need rest? How many of you need restoration? How many of us have slowly started to fight that fight in our own strength rather than in the rest that Jesus gives us, in the power that the Holy Spirit supplies us? And so we start to lose the battle some, and we start to get weary. We start to get burned out. And the weariness and the burnout and the losing makes us start to question. Friend, what, we, what you need, what we need, is the rest that Jesus gives us. The restoration of our souls, which comes from Easter. So let me finish with this. Receive the rest and the restoration of the resurrection. A lot of R's there. I intentionally did that to try to make it helpful for you to remember. Receive the rest and the restoration that comes through the resurrection. The rest and the restoration that comes because of the resurrection. Go to Jesus. Consider and remember how he describes himself. I read read to you uh, lowly and humble, but other translations say, remember how he describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. Let's just meditate that on a second as we close and as we consider what it means to go to Christ and receive these blessings. He says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That means, number, number one, gentle. Gentle means that uh, whenever you go to Christ, he, he does not receive you with a wagging finger, condemning you. Instead, he receives you with open arms. He doesn't come to you condemning you and throwing upon you and just hurling upon you all the things that you've done wrong and all the ways that he has disappointed with you and all the ways that you have failed him and the ways that you've been weak and the things that are wrong with you. The way that we so often hear, our, the way that our self-talk goes so often and, the way, and we assume God does to us or maybe that a parent did to you or someone else has done to you. We start to assume that if we go to God the Father, he receives us in such a condemning way, but he tells us, no, he is gentle. He is gentle with you. He doesn't receive you in all those condemning ways. Like I said, he receives you like the father in the parable of the prodigal son who runs to you where you come to him, who wraps you up in his loving embrace and greets you not with condemnation but with a kiss. Jesus says, I am gentle. He is gentle to receive you. But then he says, and lowly or humble in heart. I talked about this last week. I'll remind you what this means whenever Jesus is lowly in heart. In other places in the New Testament, what the, and that same word is used, it's this idea of condescended, uh, lowly in status, but particularly lowly in status socially, right? Lowly in status socially. No, think about what that means. Someone who is high in social status, the higher someone is in social status, the harder they are to reach the more inaccessible they are. And we can draw this out uh, quite large to, um, if you work in a small company, the boss is pretty accessible. They're easy to get to. If you work in a larger company, it's harder and harder and harder to get to whoever's at the top. We can draw this out even in society. How easy is it to gain access to a governor, to a senator, or more to a president or to a king? The higher you rise in social status, the more, more, and more inaccessible you are. Now, who could be more high in status and glorious than Jesus Christ? But his heart is not inaccessible. He says, I am lowly. He's easy to get to, is what he's saying. He's accessible to you. He's not far removed. And there are all these steps and all these intermediaries and all, and, and all these uh, rituals or ceremonies or, or, or forms that need to be filled out to get to him. He says, I'm lowly. He's near. He's accessible to you. Now, just think about the beauty of these two words. Because if he were harsh and condemning and accessible to us, well, then that wouldn't be helpful for us sinners. It doesn't matter if he's accessible to us if whenever I go to him, he's going to condemn me. 
right? That doesn't do us any good because we, we will remain dead in our sins. On the other hand, if he is gentle, he, is, he has open arms, he's loving, he is ready to forgive us of our sin, to give us grace and to bring restoration to our souls, but we can't reach him and get to him. Well, that doesn't help us at all either. It does no good for us. How do we reach him? What do we do to accomplish it if he's unreachable? But if he's both gentle and lowly, if he is both loving, warm, ready to embrace you, and easily accessible, well, then that is good news for us. Why is it possible? Because of the resurrection. In his resurrection, overcoming sin and death, laying your death and your condemnation in his grave, he is now available to you. He is accessible to you. And wherever you go to him, he has rest and restoration for you rather than condemnation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are gentle and lowly. That though we deserve condemnation, though we deserve to receive your wrath, Father, instead, you tell us that there is grace waiting for you in your embrace. That there is said waiting for us. And that you are not far off, Father, but that you make yourself lowly. That you make yourself near and accessible to us so that your love, so that your grace, so that your restoration, which comes in intimate relationship with you, is available to us. We thank you for that gospel, Father. We thank you that because of Jesus' resurrection, we might take joy in and that we might, we might claim as our own the words of Psalm 23, that you are our shepherd and that because of you are our shepherd, we have need of nothing so we can rest. Because you are our shepherd, you lead us to places in you where you restore our soul. And that even whenever the waters aren't so still, and the grass isn't so green, we can still walk through that dark valley because you are with us. As our shepherd king, your rod and your staff protect us. Father, you cause us to, in your presence, have our, even our cup overflowing in the presence of our enemies. Lord, because you have risen from the grave, give us certainty today that goodness and said faithful love, will follow us all the days of our life and that we will one day dwell eternally in the house of the Lord, joyfully worshiping you, laying down any merits, crowns which we might have, because we will sing and rejoice and know that, uh, that if only for Christ, and that only because of Christ, we are there. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our shepherd king. Amen.